welcome to episode 193 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we have two really great thank yous to give. Thank you so much to Dan and to Tracy for becoming the newest members of our Patreon community. We really appreciate you. It helps us so much to keep the podcast going. And reminder that we would love to have you join our Patreon community if you are not yet a patron. And you can go to the show notes to learn more about that. All right. Emily, what are you currently reading? I am reading Land of Milk and Honey by Z. Pam Zhang. This book has such a beautiful cover. It Mm. is so eye-catching if you see it at the bookstore. She's the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, which was her debut and one that I really wanted to read and never got to. And that was an adventure about a set of twins during the gold rush in the United States, but told from an immigrant perspective. She got tons of notice for that book. It was up for multiple awards. And she also was named a five under 35 author through the National Book Foundation. This is her sophomore novel, and it takes place in a dystopian future, so much different than, you know, her historical fiction novel. What's happening is that there's a deadly smog covering the United States, killing agriculture and making the food scene very difficult. Someone invents a pea protein or a mung bean protein or something that people can eat, which doesn't sound very appealing. The main protagonist is a chef and she gets invited to the Alps, the top of a hill in Italy by a somewhat eccentric wealthy man and his daughter to cook for them. And somehow mysteriously, they have plenty of ingredients available, Hmm. but things aren't necessarily what they seem. And that's what I know so far. All right. More to come on that. Yeah. So I started the Paradiso by Dante. This is the third section of his Divine Comedy that I've been reading with Colleen and Robin and Colleen's Uncle Hank and Suzanne had joined us for the Inferno. I think this might be the most challenging one for me. A lot of people say it's challenging because it's paradise. (laughs) (laughs) How much can you say about that? I've read only two cantos so far. And the second one... Dante refers to the moon as the eternal pearl. Mm. I love that. You got to keep in mind that he wrote this so long ago that it was before telescopes were invented to really look at the moon and see the craters. And they also considered the moon a planet back then. So that is interesting. So I might focus on that kind of stuff more about what did the medieval people know and how is Dante talking about it? We'll see. We are going to be discussing this one in our little Zoom group in November. We're going to try and get it done before the holidays kick in. And that's the final one, right? Yes. That's what I thought. So it's the Inferno, which is the descent into hell, Purgatory, which is Purgatory, and then Paradiso, which is rising to be with God's divine love. Mm. All the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also reading Country Place by Anne Petrie. This book was originally published in 1947, and it takes place in the town of Lenox, which is loosely based on where Petrie grew up in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, and much different than The Street, which we've talked about before, which took place in Harlem. I'm really enjoying it. We're going to talk more about it soon. Chris, what did you just read? Well, I did finish Country Place. This is my second time reading it. We're reading it for Vintage Book Club, which meets later this week. So we figured we'd hold our conversation until after Emily finishes it and we have the conversation with the book group. But highly recommend it. It's my second time reading it. And it's amazing, I think. Five stars. Yeah, we ran into each other on morning walks today. We were going in opposite directions and I'm still listening to it. And Chris was like... I could tell she wanted to talk to me about it, but she was afraid she would spoil. So we decided we wouldn't even really try to talk about it because I still have a bit to go. (laughs) We want it to be spoiler free for me today. (laughs) (laughs) I finished Afterlife by Julia Alvarez. One of the things I loved about reading this because I read the hard copy is it's this delicious little square book with soft 
the cover soft, partly because it's been read by many people. I think I got this from Aunt Ellen, who sent it to me because she read it for a book club and wanted to talk to me about it. And it's about Antonio, who's a recent widow. Her husband died very unexpectedly. And this happens right at the beginning of the book, just as she's retiring from her career in academia, he's actually heading to her celebratory dinner, and he gets in a car accident. And so it's very much a book about grief. The story picks up about a year after he's been gone and where she's at in her life. And she is part of a group of very vibrant sisters. They're from the Dominican Republic. They came when they were very young to live in the United States. And so the book is a lot about her role as a sister in birth order. She's the second from the oldest, and she's kind of the calm one that removes herself from the drama. And there's a lot of sister drama in this book and steps in when she needs to. It takes place in Vermont and her neighbor is a farmer with conservative views, but has undocumented farm help. This is during the Trump administration when there's been a lot of difficult decisions being made about how we treat immigrants in the country in the United States. So there's a whole thread about that where one of the farm workers brings his girlfriend to the country and she's pregnant when she arrives and they haven't seen each other in a while. So that's complicated, as you might imagine. I really loved this book. Julia Alvarez is also a poet. And the opening chapter is a prologue that's written in a way I've never seen. I'm going to show it to Chris. The prologue is called Broken English. They're not full sentences. There's like maybe four or five words, and then there's a forward slash, and then more words and forward slash for the whole prologue. It's such an interesting, it's almost like poetry. I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. Have you? No, I haven't, but that's a great way to represent somebody speaking in a second language. Right. Learning it, yeah. Yeah, it's such a good book. Highly recommend. Again, it's called Afterlife by Julia Alvarez. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is because she's an academic, Antonia, she was an English professor, there are so many literary references in this book. If that's something you enjoy, you would appreciate that part of the novel as well. Cool. And it has a neat cover, too. I just now noticed that there's a face in it before I just saw the tree and the leaves. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I realized that when I finished. <laughs> I had been, you know, it had been in my hands many times. And then exactly, it was sitting a little bit at a distance from me. And I was like, oh, that's a face. It's like a profile, but from the branches of the tree. Yeah. Neat. I took a break from all the hell of Dante, <laughs> and I read a fun book called My Roommate is a Vampire by Jenna Levine. It's out now from Berkeley. It came out, I think, in August. It is a rom-com vampire novel, which, you know, my younger self is rolling her eyes that I would read something <laughs> like that because I only like my vampires mean and nasty, not romantic. But this is a really cute novel with sex. There's a really significant sex scene. It makes me think about the other book I read recently, Cleat Cute, where in both of these books have really cute covers. They're kind of cartoony. They kind of look a little YA. But both of those books had pretty intense sex scenes, pretty explicit. And that surprised me because of the way the covers look. So that's going to be something interesting to talk about as we go forward. How do you read a cover? to know what kind of content is in there. Yeah. Because this is not the kind of book you'd probably want your, say, 12-year-old to read if they're an advanced reader because of that sex scene. But who knows? You know, everybody has their own choices to make. I am certainly not a prude. I was just surprised based on the cover. Yeah. It is about this vampire who has been in a coma for over 100 years because he took a drink from a friend who was a real butthole and it put him in this coma. His friend's a vampire and has been kind of watching out for him. He lives in one of the old, lovely brownstone type homes on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. So he's been in this coma for 100 years. And the other character is a woman who is, you know, she's out of college. She's been working a little bit. She's an art major. She has one of her part-time jobs is working at a library doing art stuff with kids. And then she also works as a barista 
and she's looking for another apartment. Apparently, she has a hard time staying consistently in an apartment. So there's this ad for a roommate, and it's only $200 a month in this great neighborhood, huge apartment. The ad says, I work nights, I sleep during the day. So if you have a regular day <laughs> job, it'll be great. You'll almost have the place to yourself, right? So long story short, you know what happens. I don't want to give too many spoilers. Some of the things get resolved way too fast. So if you are a stickler for those types of things, be aware. But I enjoyed it. I was eating it up. It was a perfect palate cleanser for me in between the Dante. And it's set in Chicago. So there were scenes at Schaumburg, the shopping center there, when they're trying to go buy him clothes because he's dressed like an early 19th century lord. Not necessarily lord, but very formal and everything. And then a funny thing is set in Naperville, of all places, which has a reputation unto itself as Chicago land area people know. So if you're looking for a fun, romantic rom-com book that's kind of seasonal, obviously, it's vampires, I would recommend it. My Roommate is a Vampire by Jenna Levine. See, I have problems with books like that, because right away I'm like, well, it's not practical. If he was asleep for 100 years, who took care of the house? But I don't need to get into that. His friend did. Okay. His friend who's still a butthole, apparently. Okay. He's, so he's been awake this whole time. So he's kind of rolling with the changes. But you can tell there's something off about him. Because apparently vampires have awful taste mm. in clothing and also in home decoration. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then also there's another line where before he went into this coma, his family wanted him to marry this woman from another vampire family. And he had never wanted that. So that is a complication as well. But apparently this strain of vampire can have great sex. They also have facial hair. I don't recall ever reading a vampire novel where they have facial hair. So yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Very enjoyable. So I finished The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth by Elizabeth Rush. She is also the author of Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore. And that one was about how rising seas are changing the coastline of the United States. She talked to people whose lives are permanently changed by that, whether they're continuing to live in these places that are flooding or they had to change where they live, or they lost family members. This book is about when she's invited on a scientific expedition to Thwaites Glacier. And climate scientists believe that what happens with that glacier is going to largely impact sea level rise in the future. But no one's ever been there before. It's in Antarctica. And she's invited as a reporter. And there's 57 scientists and crew members aboard this the way she chose to write the book is it's a play in four acts. So the opening has the list of all of the people on the ship and what their different roles are, whether they're crew like cooks and janitors or scientists doing very specific things. Some of them are looking at the seal populations. Some of them are just literally taking pieces of the glacier to study in the future and things like that. And then there are people like her that are there invited to report on it. The reason it's called the quickening is because the melting of the glacier is quickening and happening faster than scientists thought. But also that is the term for when you feel your baby move inside of you for the first time. And she is going on this journey at the same time she's asking herself the question, do I want to bring a child into this world knowing what I know about climate change? So she interviews a lot of the crew. I mean, she interviews all of them, but she puts little passages and that's why it feels like a play because they come and speak in italics. She does these little interviews, questions like, tell me about your birth and also questions about what they're doing there, why they're there, what they expect to learn, what's been a positive, what's been a negative. So it's very fascinating the way that it was written and then there's also these passages of her talking about 
the future where she's now off of the expedition and she is pregnant. So the structure of the book's very interesting. I did start to get a little tired of the interludes with the different crew members and things like that. I appreciated hearing from them, but I felt like it got to be a little bit too much and wanted to hear more just from her. But it's an interesting story. And it was an adventure story too. I mean, they go through the Drake Passage, which is this scary passage and they're on this ship and there's all these pieces of ice knocking into the boat. And the boat was called the Nathaniel B. Palmer. I loved the name of that. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. It took me a really long time to read. (laughs) Yeah, but you stuck with it. That's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Were they surprised that she asked them about their birth? I'm not sure if they were. And I'm curious as a journalist slash writer, if she had that idea going in or even if she followed up with them later about that, once she started writing and knew that she wanted to structure it in this way. It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I did read one interview with her where she said, so many, quote, adventure tales don't bring in the crew at all. And they're the ones that make it happen. Right? right. So I did appreciate her humanizing the work of being on a ship like this and the danger And how much they have to put their lives on hold over and over again, because she was just on it this one time. But this is what people do for a living. They go out on these big, huge journeys. There were times when she felt like, what am I doing? Like, I'm so useless. And everyone there is of such high use. And there was a scene where they were getting things prepared, samples they had taken, getting them prepared to ship them off to be stored somewhere in a facility, and she dropped something and broke it because they had offered to let her help. And it was irreplaceable. Can you imagine? (laughs) And I was like, Oh, yeah, I don't know if I would have offered to help. I get the desire because, you know, it was long hours and days. Yeah, I'd probably volunteer to help swab the deck or something like that. You know, (laughs) I would probably help to scramble the eggs, you know, like, I feel pretty safe in that arena. But yeah, so that was an intense scene. There are some scenes with weather and equipment failure and people getting sick on the boat. Like, imagine that, you know, you're in Antarctica. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. even an airlift might not even be possible, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that she's showing that invisible labor Mm -hmm. that so many traditional adventure books didn't or don't, you know, because that wasn't the focus back then. But there's just so much invisible labor in our culture as a whole. Yeah, that it's just so important, I think, to to include it. Yeah. And she also talks more at the beginning of the book about women's roles also and how they've been largely left out of history, the role they played in adventure ships that have gone to investigate new areas. And part of it is they don't want to have women on board because they have periods and things like that and also can get pregnant, right? They don't want anyone in Antarctica getting pregnant. So that's interesting too, that she started the book that way. And then of course, she's thinking about pregnancy as she's on the journey. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting at the Mystic Seaport Museum and collections that they have there, you can read some of the journals that were written by women who were quite often like the wife of Mm -hmm. the captain or or maybe another crew member and read their journals that they wrote aboard Mm -hmm. ship, which are just so cool. Yeah. That's a really cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. It sounds good. And what a juxtaposition, the quickening from feeling your baby move for the first time to the climate change quickening. Yeah. Well, I did finish The Purgatorio by Dante. We had a really good discussion about it. So this is the middle part of the Divine Comedy. In the Inferno, souls are sent to hell, and they are hopeless. They are not going to be able to redeem themselves. They are in eternal punishment, torture. It's awful. And Purgatory, though, these are souls that They have sinned, but they've redeemed themselves or they haven't committed sins that are so heinous that they are relegated to hell and torture. So the souls are there happily and willing to work on suffering to have their sin removed. So there is still physical suffering. It's not exactly torture, though, and they know it's going to end and that it's for a good cause, right? Because they're hoping to get to the pure divine love of God and everything. 
There's also a gate towards the beginning of purgatory. There's this anti-purgatory that happens for a couple of the cantos, and then there's a gate. Purgatory is already heaven. That surprised me because in my mind, I thought it was just heaven and hell. And I thought that hell was purgatory, but in Dante's poem, it's not. So there is a gate that people pass through. It's an angel that is there who was assigned there by Peter. <laughs> and the angel is told, like, you know, be light, let as many people in as you can. Like, don't be stingy about letting people in. So that was kind of a good thing. For the most part, it's the seven-story mountain now. So before it was the descent into hell and away from the light and underground and everything. And so now these souls that are called shades are progressing up the mountain. And each level is a different of one of the seven deadly sins, which I think are fascinating. I've always been kind of curious about them. Dante, his main sin was pride. So he really is kind of like silent and reflective about this. And meanwhile, people are crawling around with these huge slabs of stone on their back because the pride, they were all arrogant and lofty. So now they're being crushed by the weight of this physical stone. The kind of interesting thing is that souls decide when they are ready to move on. But it's also a surprise to them that they're ready to move on to the next level. And then one of the cool other levels was the sin of sloth, slothfulness, which I had always thought was about physical laziness and being lethargic and all that kind of stuff. But in Dante's view, it was about being slow to move toward the goodness of love, which I thought is really beautiful. So, so much of this is all about turning towards God and God's love. But I never thought about slothfulness or read about it in that way. That was good. And it was kind of funny. I actually laughed out loud at this scene. So, you know, again, people are being punished relevant to their sin, right? So they were slothful. They were slow. And now these souls that are trying to get rid of their sin to lighten their sin, they're running around. They startle Dante, like, because they come running, this whole pack of people, and they're running and Virgil, who is Dante's guide, he tries to ask him a question. And one of them is basically shouting up over his shoulder saying, oh, sorry, you know, <laughs> keep running. I'll just read a couple lines. Faster, faster, to be slow in love is to lose time, cried those who came behind. Strive, and that grace may bloom again above. I could just picture it being a scene from Monty Python, <laughs> right? You know, the first shot is all these guys and women laying around, and then the next scene, they're running in tracksuits, mm -hmm, you know, yeah, really fast. Yeah. I really like Purgatorio more than Inferno, which just was kind of gross and depressing because there's no hope. Mm. There's even the line, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Mm. That's from Dante. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, you see that in horror movies yeah. pretty regularly. But with the Purgatorio, you know that's not going to last forever. You know that they're going to be rising and leaving behind the punishment. The one thing you haven't talked about is, is it hard to read? Oh. You know how Ulysses was hard to read? Like, mm -hmm. is it hard to read or does it go down pretty easy? This translation that I'm reading, the John Ciardi translation, it goes down pretty well. Sometimes when I first pick it up for the day, I do have to maybe reread a couple pages because it's just like, wow, my mind was not prepared for that. What I like about this and it's the Signet Classics editions, there's a very short intro before each canto, which is just like a paragraph or two. It's very short, but it kind of lets you know what's happening. So when you're reading it, your mind has something to latch on to. Oh, I like the idea of that. Yeah, yeah. which is very helpful because mm -hmm. there are some things, even with reading the intro and then reading the poem and then looking at the notes that follow each canto, I still don't understand how they got to that. Mm -hmm. And it could just be that I'm not taking enough time I am reading the notes as well. I figured this is my first time through it. I'm not going to be considering myself a student of Dante. Right. I'm reading it for the experience of reading it. Yeah. So it is and it's not hard. But the good thing is if you pace yourself, now with Paradiso that I'm starting, I'm reading one canto a day. And that's not bad. That mm -hmm. takes 15 minutes, maybe a half hour if you're really going to reread it and try and think about it. So you're breaking it up. Yeah. Yeah. I finished The Goth House Experiment. That's a short story collection by S.J. Sindhu, 
which is now available from Soho Press. Really liked it. I know I talked a bit about some of the stories last episode, so I won't go into great detail, but these stories are all about queer people and immigrants and violence against people of Asian descent and relationships and trying to make it. And then the last story, it actually it explains the cover of the book, which looks like a young boy or young person with wings and some feathers falling. Hmm. But the goth house experiment, that is one of the titles of one of the stories, which is about a guy who inherits a home that his mom had lived in. And it is being haunted by Oscar Wilde. <laughs> so really good stories, like really fast. It's a fast read. I think the book is also just over 200 pages. I read it as an e-review copy. If you're looking for a good collection of short stories, I recommend this one very much. The author, S.J. Sindhu, had two previous novels under her belt, which I am putting on my TBR list. So, Biblio Adventures. I am just back from a week in Maine. I went for a wedding, and my kids joined me, so it was a whirlwind. I did get to do a couple things before they arrived. <laughs> there were no bookish things after they arrived. <laughs> but on the drive up, we stopped at the Curtis Library in Brunswick, Maine. A friend of mine had actually told me that there was a Robert McCloskey exhibit there. And for those of you who don't know, he, to me, I knew him as the author of the children's book, Blueberries for Sal which is one of my favorite books. I don't remember if it was one of my favorite books as a child, but it was definitely one of my favorite books to read to my kids. And this exhibit, first of all, beautiful library, right in downtown Brunswick, beautifully laid out, lots of great light and natural live plants, which we've seen at multiple libraries over the last couple of years. They spread the exhibit out on multiple floors, which was really nice, too. So it wasn't like, you know how you go into some libraries and they have a community room where there might be an exhibit. This really took you through the whole library. And they used colored circles to show you which direction to go. And so he is very well known for his art. He did all the illustrations for his kids' books. And what they did was they had paperback copies of the little children's books, I think they did three of them, that you could carry around with you. They were available. And then you could go and see his actual original sketches and then compare it to the book that you were holding in your hand. Really amazing. And so there was the Blueberries for Sal. A Time of Wonder, which is one of his books. It's Laura's favorite childhood book. Yeah, we actually have it framed in our living room. Oh my gosh, I wish you guys could get to see this exhibit. I should say it's over October 29th. Oh darn. They've already extended it once because it's been so popular. So one of the other books is called One Morning in Maine. Then there's one that he did to show that he really had a sense of humor called Bert Dow, Deep Water Man. <laughs> and it's about this sailor who's out on a boat and I think he gets eaten by a whale. So really fun. And one of the things I wanted to tell you about, Chris, is part of the exhibit showed where the illustrations came from. And it was from a woman named May Macy. And it was from the May Macy collection from Emporia State University Special Collections and Archives in Emporia, Kansas. And May Macy lived from 1883 to 1966 And she was the children's book editor who established two of the first three junior books divisions in major publishing houses in the United States. And she had the foresight to collect these original artworks from the authors that she worked with. What it said on the exhibit is it was a wealth of finished art that was actually contributed by the artists. They gave it to her for this archive to keep track of them. Really interesting. And the way that they set up the exhibit where you could look at the book and look at the sketches of his was just fantastic. Yeah, that's such a great idea. Yeah. 
It really is. There's this thing now they can do where they wrap walls and pictures. I've seen it in several places. So they also had really huge images from the books along the walls of the library. I haven't posted to our social media, but I will do that. So if you're interested in seeing what it looked like, check out our social media platforms. And again, that's over October 29th, which is very soon after this episode airs. But if you're up there and you get a chance, give it a try. The other place that we went to was the Wiscasset Public Library right in the town we were staying in. And their claim to fame is that they're the longest circulation library in the United States. Yeah, I think their sign said 1799. Which apparently, since I posted that on social media, and since I'm sitting across from a librarian, is is a very suspect thing to be your claim to fame, because lots of people might claim that. Lots of libraries, I should say. Yeah, I mean, there's all these different variations of how they define that. I mean, we went to the Redwood Library in Athenaeum in Rhode Island earlier this year, and they claim the same thing. You know, they started in 1747, maybe, or something like that. But they were a subscription library. There are so many different firsts. Right. And the director made it clear to say continuously circulating. So maybe there's a blip where a library might close for a month. And so then they they beat them. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to get into this one. I don't think I think it could get pretty (laughs) dicey sometimes with with librarians and their supporters. Yes. Yeah. What I will say about the town of Wiscasset that was really cool is they have this really large map on the side of one of the historic buildings with numbered buildings that shows all the historical buildings in town. And then these walking maps you can take with you. And this library, the building itself was originally a bank. And they have cool plaques outside of all the buildings that tell you their history. So it's really a lovely small town right on the water to explore. And the library itself was beautiful. Lots of sunlight streaming through, really beautifully done. And I, I went up to the top floor and it was filled with art books unusual number of art books. And then I saw that there was this long typed up thing about an artist. So I went over to it and it turns out that it was about Bernard Blackie Langless, who was an artist from that area that was very well known for doing pieces made out of wood and also various different forms of watercolor and things like that. And as I was reading, they talked about how he was the sculptor for the Scohegan Indian. And I was like, oh my gosh, remember when we read the book Milltown, Carrie Arsenal talks about this big, huge sculpture of an Indian that's in her town. And this is the artist for that. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. So they had some really beautiful works of his displayed up in that room, which I really enjoyed looking at. So beautiful library. And then the only other bookish thing that I got to experience in Maine was we arrived at our Airbnb very late at night. It was dark. It was raining. I was driving. We had already done a couple loops and circles because we couldn't find our place. And I drove past one of those, you know, when neighborhoods have like a guardhouse. It's almost a gated community. Yeah, but there was no gate. It was just a driveway. But I was driving and just past these bushes was this little weird guardhouse. I said to the gentleman caller, there's books in there. And he kind of rolled eyes like, yeah, there's books in the guardhouse. So we get we get in, we get settled, go to sleep. We wake up in the morning. He rolls over and looks at me and says, what are you thinking about? You look so pensive. And I said, I'm thinking about that guardhouse. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah. And I'm wondering if it's locked, you know? (laughs) So he said, would you like to go take a walk? I said, indeed, I would. Sure enough, it was a little free, a walk-in guardhouse little free library, y'all. Awesome. It was so cool. So I have pictures of that too, which I will post. So that just made me so happy. That is so awesome. What a great repurposing of that little shack. Right? Or hut, whatever yes. it is. Yeah. And I thought if I lived here, I would also paint it. Like it was it needed a paint job. And I was like, oh, I would make it like bright purple and yellow or something and really fun. But I was so excited to see that. 
So that was my main adventure with a few bookish moments around a wedding. Nice. <laughs> what about you? Well, I had mainly couch biblio adventures because I haven't really been going anywhere because I started this new job. I have my first librarian job. Uh, <laughs> I'm working as a reference and instruction librarian at a local college. It's been really great getting started with that. A lot of fun. I watched Eye of the Needle, which is an adaptation of Ken Follett's novel of the same name. This adaptation came out in 1981, and it stars Donald Sutherland and Kate Nelligan. I remember really enjoying it when I saw it before, and I've read the novel a couple times. It's great atmospheric tension. It's set during World War II with a spy. It's primarily set on an island off the west coast of Scotland. The movie has really great shots of the island. That was a really fun thing to rewatch. And it's on Canopy. I get Canopy's email every Friday, and that was featured in it. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And then I did watch a screening of the first episode of Lessons in Chemistry, which I know is a show that Emily is super excited to watch. And it is out now. It was really good. I didn't read the novel, but it still pulled me in. It's about a woman who is a chemist and very intelligent, smart woman, but it's the 1950s. So, of course, she is relegated to basically being a lab tech and making coffee. There's a genius in the building, and their paths cross due to thievery <laughs> on her part. But it was really good. You know, it made me think a lot of hidden figures. Mm. There's some shorthand going on in movies and adaptations I've noticed. So men making or bringing coffee to a woman is a new shorthand for equality. Mm. And, um, and that is a scene from Hidden Figures. And then another thing that I've seen in a couple films now is the genius talking with their boss and the boss saying, you do know I'm your boss, don't you? That was in Mars, the movie Mars, and some other things I've seen it. So seeing that after reading Monsters and how geniuses are treated, that they don't need to follow professional work etiquette was interesting to see. I'm looking forward to watching more of it as I settle down because I enjoyed the actors who are starring in it. And then the other thing I'm watching is Mike Flanagan's new series, Fall of the House of Usher, which is inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's short story of the same name. And that was published in 1839. And it's been a while since I've read the short story, which is mainly about a brother and a sister who are living in this old mansion that's crumbling around them. And Poe is credited with creating a lot of the American Gothic tropes that we now consider traditional American Gothic. So what Flanagan does is he has this family. It's a man who's the patriarch, and he has sired children from all these different women. So all the children are a part of it. And it's just his sister, too. It kind of goes back in time to when they're younger, and then now what is going on in the family. And there is some Dante-esque stuff happening because people start dying in a way that is representative of the father's sins, basically, because he's the head of this huge pharmaceutical company mm. that has never had any type of accountability. I really like it. I love Mike Flanagan's work. He did Midnight Mass that came out just a couple years ago that I binged three times already. I just love the arc of that story, and that's a vampire piece. He'd also done, I wouldn't call it like a straight adaptation, but another inspired by... The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. So if you're in the mood for something creepy and holiday-ish, meaning Halloween holiday-ish, you might want to check out Fall of the House of Usher or any of his works. Very cool. I'm jealous that you started Lessons in Chemistry. That was high on my list and I've just been busy. Oh, you'll be binging it yeah. now that you're yeah. back. Yeah. Well, the gentleman yeah. callers working this weekend, so maybe... Maybe I'll get through the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Although, I don't know. It's probably one of those where they're not releasing the whole thing, right? They're doing oh, pieces of it. I do not know. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the new thing. It's, and that's on Apple TV. And so I, I had signed up for that early release screening type thing mm. where you'd sign in. and Yeah. Which I recommend if you have 
Apple TV, that's a, a good thing to do yeah. to, to get a sneak peek. It's always fun. Yeah. Makes you feel special. <laughs> <laughs> You're early. You're in on it. Well, do you have any upcoming jaunts? I do indeed. I have one coming up that involves my favorite playwright in the world, Laura Toma, a.k.a. my wife. There's going to be a reading of one of her plays through the Bechdel Group in New York. They're a development theater that focuses on women writing for women. Laura's play, Rider's Block, is going to be read, and also a play by a woman named Libby Hiley, and her title is Literary Girls Obsessed with Death. (laughs) So this is taking place at The Tank, which is on 36th Street, and we'll put a link to the show notes. Tickets are free. You just go online and get the tickets and then show up that night. There'll be a reading of both plays and then a discussion afterwards. Laura's play is Writer's Block. Her play is about a woman writer who is on deadline and struggling with her internalized homophobia and changes in her writing. So I love the piece. It's been fun to watch it be developed, and I'm looking forward to seeing it uh, read with these professional actors. Very cool. That is Monday, October 30th at 6.30 p.m. And again, tickets are free, so check out the show notes for the link to that. How about you? I have the Vintage Book Club tomorrow, where we're going to be talking about Country Place by Ann Petrie. What about upcoming reads? I am really excited to read The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. He wrote a memoir called The Color of Water, That was about his growing up as a man with a black father and a white Jewish mother. That's one of my favorite memoirs of all time. And he's had several novels. This is a novel. I just keep missing them and missing them. But this one has really caught my eye. So I'm hoping to start that. And then I have The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. Her book, The Bookbinder, is our fourth quarter read-along We are not making the Dictionary of Lost Words required reading by any stretch of the imaginations, but I'm interested in reading it. And reminder that the Bookbinder read-along Zoom conversation will be December 3rd. So if you're interested in joining us, please send an email to bookcougars at gmail.com. Yeah, and that's 7 p.m. Eastern time. Right. What about you? Okay, so I have a couple books on my stack here that I'm going to be starting. Um... The first is The Art of Libromancy by Josh Cook. The subtitle is Selling Books and Reading Books in the 21st Century. And Josh is a bookstore owner, so he's been selling books for a while. And this is a collection of essays dealing with a lot of contemporary things going on in the bookselling world. Is he the one that's at the bookstore in Cambridge? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I remember you talking about this one. Yeah. Yeah, he is the bookseller. He's actually the co-owner of Porter Square Books in Cambridge, which we had the pleasure of going to for the first time earlier this year, where we saw Laura Sims in conversation with Paul Tremblay. Yeah, that was a great event. We didn't have much time to browse. And I don't know if it's because of that that I found out about his book, but this is a newish release out this year. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and that's an employee-owned bookstore, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and the employees were great there. Mm-hmm. So yes, friendly they were. and enthusiastic. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm reading that with our buddy John Valeri of Central Booking, YouTube fame. I'm also doing a buddy read of The Tattooed Woman by Marion Engel. This is a collection of short stories I'm doing with this with Sean the Book Maniac and, and some other friends. They have an annual Marion Engel colloquy, I guess you could say, (laughs) where um, this is going to be the third year that they're doing it. So I think they started with Bear, which is her most famous novel, probably. It's about the woman who has the relationship with the bear. And so this is a collection of short stories that are all very short. I think there are 16 short stories in here, and I'm holding it up to Emily. It's pretty thin. Yeah. And she's a Canadian writer. So really looking forward to digging into those. And then... In My Sweaty Little Hand is also a copy of Justin Torres's Blackouts, which is on the shortlist for the National Book Award. And so this book deals with documents that have been redacted. So you know how 
You see them and, you know, the words are blanked out and supposedly (laughs) unreadable. Sometimes they are still readable. But what's interesting is the text in this book, it's actually almost like a cream-colored page, and then the writing is brown. The Hmm. text, I should say, is brown. Throughout the whole book, the text is brown, which I think is an interesting choice. It'll be revealed why this choice was made, but I did think that for people who have visual impairment, that might not be the best thing for them. Yeah. So more to come on that. I loved his first book, We the Animals, so much. Very amazing writer. I can't wait to hear what you think about that one. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I I didn't read that one. I remember you talking about it. Mm. In the Out Now category, Best American Short Stories, edited by Heidi Pittler and Min Jin Lee, and then Death Valley by Melissa Broder. All right. And coming up next, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Davina of Book Browse. Happy Happy reading. reading. We're excited today to be talking with Davina Morgan Witz. She's the publisher of Book Browse, an online book magazine and book discovery resource for book club members and inquiring readers. She has spent 15 plus years surveying about 20,000 book club members. So she's become, you know, something of an expert on all things book club. Welcome, Davina. Thank you so much, Chris and Emily. It is so good to meet you. So Davina, when we have authors on, we ask them to give us their shelf talker about their book or their elevator pitch. Can we ask you the same question about book browse? Absolutely. I think, honestly, uh, Chris summed it up very well. We are your guide to exceptional books. Our fundamental premise is there's too many books in the world to read, to read about them, let alone read them. And so we cut through the noise by offering a curated resource of books that we believe are best in class. And we're not for everyone. We are, we are focused on people who read to expand their horizons. We aren't interested in books that kind of send you to sleep. But when you finish them, you want to be staying up late reading those pages and know something new about the world that you didn't before. So we're, we're not just the book clubs, but the books we pick, you know, definitely Book Club Central. And for anyone who just wants to know new stuff when they finish a book. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. great. Yeah, we noticed um, and we've both stumbled upon it in the past, I know, and, and now we've spent a couple um days kind of looking around through it and it's so full of information for readers uh, one of the really fun things that you have is a pronunciation guide for author names how do you develop that and how do you make sure you're getting the right pronunciation we used to go to the publicists and ask them but we actually found they were rather unreliable narrators so now <laughs> we try very hard to actually find a video online of the person saying their name you also mm. sometimes find them on the author's website. In, and it's tricky because you've got to be so careful because something that seems so obvious, like, do you remember the children's author, Brian Jakes? Or yeah. I would call it Jacques. Jacques, exactly. <laughs> but he's a Northern Englishman, firmly going to pronounce his name English. And so you simply can't presume on how somebody... So in short, yes, we try to go to the original resources, sources as often as we can. And if we get it wrong, the authors tend to contact us and say, we got it wrong. <laughs> Well, we really appreciate that resource, yeah, for, for sure. sure. Davina, what do you think makes a good book review? One of the things that frustrated me when I started Book Browse was I would read reviews in the erudite media, and it would be someone who was an expert in their topic who was saying, well, this book isn't as good as the seminal work published in 1955 in 12 volumes. <laughs> I was thinking, I don't care about that. I just want one biography, 300 pages of this person. I don't want the 20-volume Churchill set. So I think a good review helps readers understand if the book is right for them. Yes, the reviewer needs to have knowledge, yes, but they need to wear that knowledge lightly. It's not a forum to show off how clever they are. It's to help the reader understand if that book is right for them. And that's why we package up not just a review, but also an excerpt of the book, because how can you tell without actually reading a few pages if that book's going to be right for you? Yeah, and I really appreciate that too, because I know not all reviewers, even professional critics, 
they don't stick to the book quite often. And the review becomes something else, as you said. So it's really great to find a place where the focus is on that book. It can also be very difficult to actually find out what the person's opinion actually is. When you mm-hmm. dig through, you realize they haven't actually said what they think. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. they gave away all the plot points and didn't yes, really yeah. tell you anything else. I mean, yeah. It is very reductive to reduce a, a review to a five-point scale. But at some point, you need somebody to say, this is actually my view. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they can come to trust that reviewer or look for, you know, look forward to that person's reviews. Absolutely. And on the book browser, you can always click through to see what else that reviewer has chosen. Our selection process starts with the catalogue six months ahead. We're picking out books that we think look like they'll be of interest. We're then cross-referencing as pre-proper reviews to see which are kind of living up to expectations. And only then are we adding the books to book browse. And from that list, we're then shortlisting down to a, a, a list that goes to our professional reviewers, one or two people at a time, saying to them, which book would you like to review? And so they get to pick the book that v- resonates with them, the b- book that they have some knowledge, you know, some knowledge maybe the topic or just an interest in. And so you can actually click on our reviewers and follow their interests to a large extent. Yeah, I found myself doing that with a book that's you know, out just now, but then I I loved the review so much. I thought, I want to see what else she's reviewed. And it was really interesting. And she's been a reviewer for you for a long time. So it was, it provided quite a list. (laughs) Yeah, we we had some reviewers who've been with us for a very long time. And we are so fortunate to have such an amazing bunch of reviewers and editors. I mean, honestly, I'm redundant in the process at this point and delightfully so. Uh, (laughs) What started with me, you know, tapping away on a computer screen, 25 years ago or something, is now just this wonderful bunch of intelligent, clever, interesting people who are coming together to create something. That's great. And I love that it's like a human algorithm. (laughs) When you have, you can click on a reviewer's name and look at all the things that they've reviewed. And that is the perfect recommendation system. Yeah. Talking of algorithms, again, we, you know, it's very old fashioned of us, but when we do our reader likes, you know, I've read this book, what should I read next? We don't use algorithms. We use humans. The editors and reviewers work together. You know, we look not just for the setting of a book, because just because you've read a book setting, you don't necessarily want another book exactly the same, but we're looking at setting, language, characters, all those factors. And so we can make intuitive leaps between books, which the algorithms aren't going to do because really they just serve up, you know, more in the same categories. Right. Or recently purchased by other people. Well, they could have purchased that, but it could have been 10 gifts for a variety of different people. So, or different people in their household, who knows? Absolutely right. Yes. And it, Mm -hmm. it maddens me because yeah, it's useless. (laughs) So let's talk about the book club resource that you have on Book Browse. You have an actual, is a manual the right way to say it? I don't know if that's what you would call it. A resource guide? Well, as you mentioned in the intro, we've been researching book clubs and readers for a long time. I Honestly, I think it's way more than 20,000 people at this point. Uh, We kept most of the research to ourselves or shared it with publishers uh, over the years. But around 2019, I realized that there was a gap in the research available to book clubs and librarians about what actually makes book clubs tick. And what got me focused on this was an article in the New York Times, which actually name-checked book browse and our previous research, which got obviously got my attention. But then this article segued into this laundry list of things that I knew were wrong about book clubs, about how they're the hotbeds of gossip and wine and drama. And that is just not what I had known from the book clubs we'd spoken to. So I thought, we hang on, we need to get some quantitative data on this. So that was the trigger for this huge 2019 report, um, which is more a guide. It it, it started as research and it's now turned into essentially a guide to book clubs, everything you want to know about them, from why do people join groups in the first place, what do they love about their groups, what goes wrong in groups, how do groups fix these things. And it, it's fantastic. And uh, sorry, I shouldn't say it. Sorry. <laughs> Immodest to me. Uh, but genuinely, I, you, can, you can buy the report in PDF or print, but in our blog, we have a huge advice section and in our book club section where we basically pulled out information from this to create articles. I mean, for example... 
one thing that came out of research is the importance of solving problems before they happen. You know, there's three ways to solve problems in life. You avoid it happening in the first place, you talk about it, or you ignore it. And what we realized was if you have a book club health check once a year, you know, it doesn't have to be once a year, but basically have a check-in with your group about once a year and throw in a few open-ended questions, which we provide in the blog post, to probe how things are going. Because even the happiest functional group, new ideas come up. And for the groups that are having problems, that is a time to say, you know, actually, we just seem to be segueing the books to too much of these types of books. And I thought I'd join this group to talk about these types of books. And you suddenly discover that actually lots of other people feel the same way because you've had an opportunity to discuss it. So that's one of, you know, one of the many findings that came out. I love it. It's like book club therapy. Yes. I love it. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's 50 pages of book club therapy. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And how did you, if you don't mind me asking, if this is something you can talk about, how did you find the people to interview to answer your questions? We uh, have about 70,000 subscribers, newsletter subscribers. So we have sometimes gone to outside people. For example, we did a, we did a survey a few years ago of men in book clubs, and we didn't feel we'd have enough in our own list. So we, we went out and through SurveyMonkey bought respondents as such to, to come to us. But otherwise, we use our own base. So obviously, there is a skew that it is people who are visiting book browse. But uh, out of 5,000, you know, that survey was 5,000 people. That's an awful lot of awful lot of book clubbers to pass through the information. And so, yes, there will be some bias because people who are coming to book browse are probably among the more serious book clubbers. But, I mean, for example, one of the findings of the research is that there's a total correlation between the length of time that a book club discusses books and happiness. Mm, interesting. And, you know, most book clubs, 84% of the book clubs, were discussing a book for more than 40, 40 minutes, 40 minutes or more. And the longer they were discussing, the groups who discussed the 20 minutes, who were more of a wine and cheese brigade, probably, you know, 20 minutes or less, were saying that they're quite happy. 55% were saying they're very happy. Most were saying they're quite happy. But it just ratcheted up the longer those discussions and the more focused the discussions. And I think some groups are, some people in groups are kind of scared to say, actually, I joined this group because I wanted to discuss books. And if you actually have that open discussion, you might find, oh, yeah, I did too. I can talk about the neighborhood tomorrow. So in the show notes, we'll link to your blog post about this, but we also will provide a link so that people can purchase the guide themselves. That would be lovely if they wish to, absolutely. But they can get a lot of information from, from the blogs as well. But yes, I mean, the, the guide, I think, costs $19, $19. And you suggest that that'd be helpful for librarians, but also for people who are in and or lead book clubs, correct? I think it would be. Uh, I mean, I'm not here to pitch a product, so my apologies if I got into this unnecessarily. But um, yes, I mean, many libraries have it listed in their reference section because it's something that you know we have the 12 most common problems and how book clubs have resolved it and you know the overwhelming most common problem is the overly dominant personality yes. whether intentionally <laughs> or not they just can't help yeah. themselves and that impacts everything from some members of a group not speaking up discussions going off topic and so i think to have that holistic being able to look at it holistically and see by reading the whole thing or reading the blog posts to know you're not alone, to know you're not the only book club out there. I mean, most book clubs are having a fantastic time, but 26% of the people who'd left a book club previously in the survey had left because they were unhappy. And so often it was because the dynamics of the group had changed. New people had joined. The ground rules hadn't been laid out because nobody had really set them down. Nobody had really thought. They'd just known this was how the group worked. But when new people joined, it, it went off track. And people stay, stick around. It's like the frog in the boiling water that they, they stick around for, you know, years after, you know, the, the group's going wrong, trying to make the best of it. Mm. And it could all be solved yeah. by just having that health check by, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 That's great. You also have quizzes on your website on Book Browse. And I was uh, doing one last night, and I think it was historical fiction. And I, I did okay, according to the results. But what what was really great about it was it turned me on to some 
really good books that I've put on my TBR now. I find the challenge is making the quizzes not too hard, but also not too easy. None of us want right. to, you know, whiz <laughs> through and know everything. But yeah, right. I'm glad you enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, well, just the way the questions are phrased, it's kind of like, oh, oh I want to read that book. Like, so <laughs> it didn't really matter which one I guessed, because then I got to look at all of them. So that's a wonderful way to to discover new books as well. Thank you. Davina, there are also giveaways on Book Browse. So do people have to become members of Book Browse? How do you recommend listeners participate in Book Browse? We have sweepstakes giveaways when absolutely no, you don't have to be a member of Book Browse. We have a lot of content that's available for free, but full access is only for individual members and libraries that subscribe so that all their patrons and staff can access for one very reasonable annual rate. Patrons can view from anywhere. They don't even have to log in to start. They can just literally just click a link and they can start browsing as a patron of their library. The free book giveaways you may have seen are the First Impressions books and the Book Club books, which are connected with membership. And those are connected with our First Impressions program, which is our early reader program. And those are only available to members uh, because the publishers provide those books expecting a high response rate and thoughtful responses and it's part of why the members are part of Book Browse. Only maybe 20% of members actually take part in the office, but those who want to, want to be involved in talking about books, speaking their mind on books, having their voice heard ahead of publication. And so, you know, if you want free books, just go to the library. You don't need to read <laughs> really. But, so the members are taking part in it, not because it's free, but because they enjoy the process. And there's also our book club program where the book club discussions are open to anybody. You just need to register and create a profile and double opt in to make sure you're a real person. But we only share the books with the members because we need a solid mass of members who are vested in the discussion to join it, to make it happen, to have that cohesive group. And that's another thing on our book club discussions. When you go back and read those later, they are really interesting to read because people taking part understand they need to read what's been said before, listen to what's been said and respond to that. And so you don't have people going off on sidetracks, talking about their cats or repeating what's been said. So the discussions are really good exploring and finding books for your book club because you can, you can go and read the overall what do you think comments, which have no spoilers without having read the book. But then if you've decided you want to discuss the book with your group. You could go and see what we've discussed and what topics did well. Right. Great resource. Yeah. And this is off the subject of book browse a little bit, but what is your background with reading? How did you become a reader? Well, I grew up in England, you probably guessed. I'm in California now, <laughs> having been 30 years, but still sound like I got off a plane last week. And in England at the time, there were two channels, TV channels, and they went off by nine o'clock at night. I mean, you you just didn't watch TV. There wasn't anything. And I'm not that old. I just, England was a long way behind America and TV channels. No, I mean, I grew up reading. I grew up, my formative memories were Paul Gallico. I mean, my favorite book of all time is a book that almost no one's heard of his, of, called The Man Who Was Magic, about a little girl in a town of magicians and a real magician comes along, a town of fake magicians and a real magician comes along and takes her under his wing and Snow Goose, Small Miracle. Um, there didn't seem to be money, and obviously the Phantom Tollbooth. You know, one of the things I find frustrating is when people try and talk down to children. I mean, I had no idea what a tollbooth was until I came to America. I'd never really registered mm. the term because we don't have tollbooths in Britain. I suppose we have something in Europe, but they're not called tollbooths. But it never bothered me. I didn't know what the term meant. It didn't make a difference. I think I graduated straight out of Winnie the Pooh into thrillers and mysteries. Anyway, I've always been a reader, always. Yeah, there wasn't much teen stuff back no. back in the day. I mean, I remember when I was uh, like something like The Outsiders and Judy Bloom. Yeah. You know, I was already a teen when that stuff started mm -hmm. coming out, I think. So I yeah. don't think Judy Bloom was a thing in England. Maybe she was and I just didn't didn't know about her. But I, I was mm -hmm. reading Dick Francis by the age of eight or something because, you know, there was that, just what That's what was available. And, and, yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah. and, and Don Camillo's, um, who I can't remember, Italian author who wrote the Don Camillo stories, I thought were fantastic. Um, story about a Catholic priest in Italy and the communist mayor who are always 
up against each other. And again, I didn't know what most of this stuff was about. I just thought they were very funny. Anyway. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> answering that. I always love to hear about how people come to reading. So we said we weren't going to ask you this, but maybe we should go out with one book recommendation of something that is interesting that has captured your attention. Only one. <laughs> Oh, Davina, we can relate. (laughs) Uh, Northwoods by Daniel Mason. It's published this week. We've just opened a discussion. It is fantastic. It's set in... uh, Do do you know it? I do. I haven't read it, but heard great things. As a matter of fact, he's in a book event tomorrow at a bookstore that I'm so tempted to go to, but it would be an all-day affair. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's just fantastic. You'll obviously be talking about it in your own podcast probably. So I'll just throw in another one for Julia by um, Sandra Newman, which is a feminist modern retake on 1984, Orwell's 1984. Mm. And my husband's just finished 1984 and I just finished Julia and we're supposed to be swapping. But I think Julia is the better of bet. I think 1984 is a bit stodgy <laughs> in places, as far as I recollect. Yeah, yeah, we do have that. We're yeah. both planning on reading that. We should that. take a picture of us since we don't have a, a book that we could do this. <laughs> yeah, <There you> go. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so you liked it because we were I, I thinking of it. doing it. I liked it. Um, okay. Yeah. I honestly can't remember much in 1984 other than, you know, all the bits we've we've remembered over time, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the new speak sort of terms or whatever they're called. But yes, it was very interesting and uh, very prescient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well Davina, great. thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.